Well, good afternoon, church. It is so good to be with you again. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Robin Waller. Uh, along with my wife, we have the joy of serving as uh, lead pastors of our church family. And uh, just before I get into the message, one announcement I would like to make or a reminder is that today is uh, the final deadline for uh, the initial applications for the missionary appointment. Uh, March 28th. It's March 28th. I don't know where March went, but uh, would love for you, encourage you to get your application in for the missionary appointment today. I know a lot of you have been grappling with this, asking questions today is the day to get your application in. So right after livecast today, uh, after you gather with your simple church, hop online, head over to engage.liftchurch.ca. We've put the link right there on the homepage, uh, missionary appointment, and you can just uh, get your details in for that. Um, and, uh, there will also be some more information coming on that next, uh, Sunday on the town hall. So I'm really excited about that. So missionary appointment, get your applications in, join our church family in a committed way for the long term as we serve our campuses, uh, really, uh, of the world, wherever God deploys missionaries and, uh, people to go make disciples. All right, well, today we are actually jumping back out of Mark, back into a conversation about church as family. And for the next five weeks, I hope, I, I think we'll be able to get through the content in five weeks, but I'm not sure, uh, as I've been developing it with, with some of the team. I think God has a real thing, uh, a real message for our church, uh, something really exciting. We're actually going to be marrying the webcast and the live cast together again. So the webcast this past week was on dating discipleship, specifically boundaries. Go give it a give it a watch. Dan did a great job plugging that. But this coming Thursday, live at 730, we're going to be doing an application time of what I'm teaching tonight. So we're going back to live cast and webcast working together, teaching really theology, doctrine, ideas uh, on Sundays, and then applying it in the context of Simple Church Families on Thursdays. So Sunday, Thursday for the next number of weeks we're together. So we've been doing a lot of teaching on church's family, but what we're going to shift our attention to is the conversation around leadership. What is leadership? And before I get into kind of the, the context of this, I want to explain where did this uh, this series come from? Like, why are we doing this now? Well, leadership could be a really powerful, beautiful, incredible force. And when it's used effectively, leadership will bring about the best in people, in families, <clears throat> in churches. It'll lead to thriving relationships everywhere, even in broader communities and countries. Leadership is powerful. But on the other hand, when leadership is abused, Leadership is uniquely and profoundly destructive. In fact, I don't think, I cannot think of a human endeavor that is, uh, has as much potential for positive good as leadership and potential for destructive forces as leadership. There are a few things that are as potentially positive or as potentially disastrous as leadership. And for that reason, it's absolutely vital that we get our theology straight on what is leadership. In the past few months, the broader church world has been uh, yet again rocked tragically by a series of uh, failed leadership stories, leadership gone awry. Stories of moral failure, sexual abuse, breach of trust, 
financial mismanagement, not in our church, to be clear. I mean the broader church at large. And when we see these stories happen, I think we ask questions like, how do we address these abuses? How do we prevent cults of personality? How do we make sure that leadership is healthy in the church? What does healthy leadership even look like? So on the one train of thought, we're looking at some of the, the negative that can happen, and we want to speak to that. But on the other hand, over the last few years, as we have championed this core value of our church, everyone sent to multiply everything, this idea that every believer is called to be a participant in the mission of the church, we've received a wide range of questions. On the one hand, if everyone is sent and if everyone is called to multiply disciples, why do we have leadership structures? What's the point of leadership structures? Are we just an organization? On the other hand, people have asked, if everyone is sent, doesn't that mean that there's no leadership? That sounds really unhealthy. What about qualification for leaders? And it might surprise you to know that we get equal questions on both of those. Questions on why are we so structured and questions on why do we have no structure? <laughs> it's fascinating how different people see things differently. Other questions arise, like, why do the, the leaders uh, such as myself have such an influential voice? Why should, quote, Robin have a say? I've sat down with uh, many people over the years that have asked that. How does authority work? What about church discipline? Should the church discipline people? Should we publicly discipline people? Should we hold people to a moral, ethical, or theological standard? What about the formation of doctrine and theology in people? How do we make sure that we are, as a church, walking in a well-worn, trustworthy, Jesus-honoring road? And while we grappled with these questions, we have been asking, how do we ensure that every believer, every person in our church is a participant in mission? How do we present how do we prevent church leadership from functioning like a job or a career? I mean, I'm adamant with our team. It doesn't matter what your role is. You don't work for the church. Whether you're bivocational, full-time student, full-time with the church, doesn't matter. None of us really work for the church or we all work for the church. Questions like, how do we empower every believer towards thriving maturity in Christ? How do we keep discipleship at the forefront of our thinking in developing a theology of leadership? Can you get a sense that there's some real big questions that we need to speak to? Now, a lot of these questions were addressed in uh, the book that we wrote, Everyone Sent to Multiply Everything, particularly part three in that book that talks about leadership structures. And it might be an interesting primer for some of you, but it's also pretty technical and admittedly a little bit dry reading. So, um, but Esme, everyone sent to multiply everything in the book, didn't seek to establish a theology of leadership in general. Instead, it was trying to focus on how do we intersect discipleship and uh, our leadership structures. Now, as we began to think about addressing these questions, we got a lot deeper. We dug. We've been digging for months on this. And I think there's an interesting question. Is Christian leadership, is church leadership the same as organizational leadership, but with Jesus-y principles layered in? 
such as servanthood. What we realized was that no, church leadership has been revolutionized by the resurrection of Jesus. If you and I have been raised from death to life by the grace of Jesus in our lives, then the way that we relate to each other in leadership should also undergo a similar kind of death to life transformation. In other words, church leadership isn't organizational leadership with Jesus layered in. Church leadership is a revolution, a death to life transformation around what it looks like to walk in community and on mission together. So what we have done is we've started with the question of what would leadership look like if we started with the gospel instead of starting with organization? What would leadership look like if we started with Jesus' vision for the church instead of starting with organizational structures? And the basic thesis that I want to, I hope to teach our church over the next number of weeks is that the vision we see rising from the New Testament and the Old Testament about leadership is that God's intent in gospel leadership is rooted in church as family and the call of every believer to participate in mission. The thesis of this entire several week series is that the story of God in scripture is that gospel leadership is about church as family and the invitation of every believer to participate in mission. Now, this conversation around leadership isn't about the, quote, senior leadership team. It's about all of us. What we're going to discover is that gospel leadership is about every believer, learning to walk out the call that God has placed on them to walk in church's family, leading people to Christ. The call to leadership is not reserved for the spiritually elite or the key people on the team that everybody knows. The call to leadership is a universal call on every believer to participate in the process of reproducing disciples. And so every time I say leadership, I want you to think or say to yourself, he's talking to me. When I say leadership, I'm not referring only, although I am referring in part to the regional directors, the leadership team, the uh, multipliers, and so forth. But I'm speaking more broadly. I'm speaking to you wherever you are. If you are a follower of Christ, you have a call to leadership. And my hope is that, that we will develop a theology on this together. So that was a very long introduction, but this message is going to be kind of in that tone. It's gonna, I really want to make sure our foundation is strong. My job, we're going to discover the primary thing I'm concerned about is making sure we get our theology, our thinking, our hearts, and our posture correct before the Lord. I'm not trying to entertain us. I want to call us back to Jesus and what he said in his word. And so in a minute, we're going to dive into scripture on this, but I have kind of given you where we're going, the thesis. So if this was a, a paper, I put my thesis at the beginning, and now we're going to get into the meat of it. So before we can talk about how leadership functions in the context of the church, we have to go back to the beginning of, and see Jesus' vision for the church. In other words, we must ask the question, what is the church? We can't answer the question, what is leadership in the church, without first answering the question, what is the church? 
Now, the place we're going to anchor this whole series is in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, now, there's a number of reasons for this, but the reason I think the, if the letters to the Ephesians is so critical is that Paul was really intimately connected with the Ephesian church. A lot of the letters that he subsequently wrote were to the Ephesian leadership. Paul's letters to Timothy, for example, was while Timothy was leading the church in Ephesus. So we can learn a lot from Paul. He was intimately involved on the ground. There was riots. There was all kinds of chaos. You should go read the story. In, I think it's Acts chapter 18 and 19 about Paul's story in, in Ephesus. And he had this deep friendship with Timothy, the leader of Ephesus. And he wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus called Ephesians. So on three accounts, Paul has relationship with the leadership, relationship with the whole church, and he was personally there. He wielded a great deal of influence in the church. He himself demonstrated what leadership in the church looked like. So we're going to start and work our way through Ephesians. So today I'm going to uh, spend a bunch of time in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and then wrap up in Ephesians 4 and 5 uh, today. So we're going to go pretty quick here. So as we get into it, we cannot understand how leadership will function until we understand the role of the church. Leadership exists to facilitate the cosmic why of the church, the eternal why of the church. And in Ephesians 1 verse 5, we see Paul introducing this why, what, what the church is about. Ephesians 1 verse 5 says this, He, Jesus, or sorry, the Father, predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. That's Jesus. What is the church? Simply put, the church is the answer to the plan that the Father had since the beginning of creation, that through Christ, we would be unified together as a family or a people. We were predestined, it says. Now, it doesn't say that we were predestined for salvation like we tend to often read this. No, it says that we were predestined for family. We were predestined to be sons and daughters together. God's intent in creation, the destiny for which he has assigned to us, is to be joined into the family of God. God's purpose was always to bring together his church as the family of God. Now, this stems from the very beginning of the story in Genesis with Abraham. In Genesis 12, verses 1 and 2, God promises Abraham that he was going to fulfill his promise that through Abraham he would be a blessing, sorry, that Abraham would be a great nation. Genesis 12, 2, God's promise to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. A great nation. Now, this isn't like a nation state like we think about it. That's kind of a 20th or 21st century kind of idea. No, what God was promising was that, Abraham, I'm going to make your family. I'm going to make you such an expansive, beautiful, encompassing family that it's going to be a nation. Before the law, before the sacrificial system, before the story of Moses, before the kings and priests and prophets, there was a promise of a family. Now, initially, the people of Israel believed that it was through them that it was through Israel that the promises would be fulfilled. 
But obviously that didn't happen. The story of Israel is not one of God uh, fulfilling this picture of being a great nation that, that fulfills uh, the blessing to the rest of the world, but rather one of rebellion and selfishness. But <clears throat> Jesus' death and resurrection changes everything. In Jesus' resurrection, God was forming a new humanity. Like when Jesus resurrects, it was the sign, it was the foretaste, it was the beginning of an entirely new humanity, a new family with Jesus at the head. And that family, the family that God was birthing in the resurrection of Jesus, was an invitation for people to come and be unified around Christ Jesus as Lord. The fulfillment of God's promise of restoration would not be through a family of shared genetic blood, but a common shared shed blood of Jesus. Ephesians 1, 7, Paul goes on to say, in him we have redemption through his blood. It's Christ's blood that makes us family. You might be wondering, why did I just uh, outline a theology of church's family? What bearing does that have on leadership in the church? Well, everything. Because it means that at the core, when we talk about the church, whether it's the global universal church or a particular local church, we are talking not about a human institution. Live Church is a corporation registered with the government of Canada, yes, but that is not the encompassing identity of Live Church. No, the identity of Live Church is the participation as a church family, as a part of the broader universal church family. The church is a family created to fulfill God's purposes. The church was part of God's plan since the dawn of creation. That through the church, he would bring together brothers and sisters. Not because we all agree or we all like each other, but by a supernatural work of Jesus' grace. Listen to this invitation. What have you been invited to? So when you think about leadership, when you start to think about it, say like, it's not an institution. It's more like this. So you, brothers and sisters, wherever you are listening to this, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. This is Ephesians 2.19. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Think about that. The church is a supernatural family, not a human organization. It is supernatural because it brings together those who would be foreigners and strangers and declares that they are members of the same household, not because of what they have done, but because of what Christ Jesus has done for them. Now, we've taught at length about this principle, and I think we're starting to get it. We st we're, we're not all there yet, but we're, we're getting there as a church. We introduced it. I think probably for the first time in depth last August, we taught at length about navigating when there's a gap between uh, our experience and the reality this January, things like conflict and burden sharing. But now we want to start to apply this principle to leadership. And very practically what this means right at the outset, that the human principles of organizations, good as they may be, cannot merely be imported into the church Rather, we need to do some difficult work of asking, 
What does it mean that we are family? And how do we work together for the purpose or mission of our family? Now, if you're listening carefully, you might have just noticed that I introduced a new idea. I just said, what does it work mean to work together for the mission of the family? So we started by asking the question, what is the church? But the second question we have to ask when we think about leadership is what is the purpose of the church? What is the church? It is a family bought by Jesus' blood. But what is the purpose of the church? Well, what do you think the purpose of the church is? What are your expectations, hopes, and dreams for our church or for a church? What is the ultimate job of the church? In many cases, we tend to relate to the church as an institution, as filling some sort of spiritual checkbox. And you see, if the church is an outside organization that we subscribe to, that will have a lot of implications for how we think about leadership. First of all, if the church is just an institution that we happen to be a part of, maybe we really like, maybe we're even serving passionately, but if it's just an institution, it will first of all mean that we will be limited in understanding our role in the church. It means that our role in furthering the purpose of the church will be limited because we will not see ourselves as having any intrinsic value to add to the church. If the church is a family, every member of the family is valuable and every member of the family has a role. But if it's an institution, then, you, then you're not going to see yourself as having an intrinsic value or leadership responsibility. The second implication here is that if it's just an institution, it means that the leadership or the purpose of the organization exists to serve us, our demands. And it's very easy when we think about church as institution to draw a circle around ourselves and our friends and put leadership outside of it, whether it's our simple church leadership, our regional leadership, or any other leadership, to see it as a us versus them. That's what institutional thinking does to the way we think about leadership. You see, viewing church as a spiritual vending machine is contrary to everything we read about God's intent for the church in Scripture. So when you think about church, have you developed a theology, an understanding of what the church is as a family? Have you allowed some of the cultural baggage that we come to church with, church as institution, church as organization, to be shed? So what is the church? Well, Paul answers that in Ephesians 3, verse 10. Ephesians 3, verse 10. He says that in all of this, in all of Paul's proclaiming the gospel, it is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the role of the church is to declare the cosmic, eternal, glorious nature and character of God, not through individuals, the character of God is not revealed through individuals alone. It's revealed through the church. 
Not through events, not through productions, not through religious goods and services, not even through great sermons per se. It's revealed through the church and you are part of that. God has chosen to reveal himself through a family, not an institution. And the reason God did this is because that when the church understands this call, we get to be a blessing to the nations. God's purpose in giving us a mission of making him known was so that we could be a blessing to the nations. Genesis 12, 2 God promises Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. When the church is a family, we serve, lead, sacrifice, bless, give, and disciple. The rest of the world, what we are doing is fulfilling the promise that God made to Abraham. God promised Abraham that he would be a blessing. It was not revealed. It was not realized. But it is realized through the church in Christ. You see, the church is not playing some kind of game of community. We are on, you and I are on a vitally important mission of cosmic significance, and that's not hyperbole. It's what Paul just said in Ephesians 3 verse 10. And it's easy to lose sight of the glorious mission of the church in the day-to-day, mundane, broken, messed-up churches that we're all a part of. But the glory of Christ's church remains. You see, the church is not just a family. It's a missional family, a family with a purpose. And Paul has been making the case in Ephesians that Because of Christ's work, we are united into a new eternal family and have been given the task of proclaiming the name of Jesus through the process of disciple-making. Again, you might be going, Robin, we know this, but when we lose sight of this mission, when we lose sight of the missional call of church as family, we will lose sight of the leadership role that the Lord has for each of us. When we can remember what the church is, that the church is not just a family, it is a missional family, it becomes clear that every person has a vital role to play in the mission of the church. Leadership is transformed in that moment from an organizational function that exists to accomplish goals and projects. No, leadership becomes a missional function that exists to bring together the church family so that the church family can together walk in the mission that God has given us to proclaim Jesus and make disciples. What we're starting to see is a picture that is simultaneously worship, unity, and mission. And so, therefore, leadership is going to exist to bring those pieces together, worship, unity, and mission. Now, all of this is really vital because it's the foundation that Paul is going to launch into for Ephesians chapter four. All of this background context, you be like, that was half an hour background context. Yes, but it's really important. Let me show you why. In the last verse of Ephesians chapter three, Paul says this, 
verse 20. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul concludes the first three chapters with a prayer, a prayer for the church. And it's a conclusion. It's a conclusion because he's saying that in everything the Father has been doing and bringing the church as a family is about the glorification of Christ. And the picture that Paul is painting for the church, the job that Paul is giving the church, the picture of a family and the job of mission is impossible. And that's why he invites us to say, yes, this is more than we could ask or imagine, but it is possible by Jesus' grace. Your role as a participant in the mission of God, as a leader or influence and disciple, you may feel like it's impossible. You might feel like you don't have the skills, you don't know how to bring it, you don't have enough experiences. And the truth is that it is, in fact, impossible. None of us can lead gospel leadership on our own. Gospel leadership is not organizational leadership. You may be a great organizational leader that does not make you a good gospel leader. Gospel leadership is impossible in our strength. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. By the resurrection of power of Christ, he is able to do in and through you infinitely more than we could ask or imagine. The story of Christian leadership is a story of an impossible family union made up of hopelessly flawed individuals working together for something of eternal significance and glory. And it's from this context that Paul launches into the leadership structures and roles of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. He concludes with this glorious picture and this beautiful prayer. And in verse 1 of chapter 4, he starts to apply it to people. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. This verse is so critically important because it is the so what to the theology that he, Paul has laid out in the first three chapters. Notice what he says here. He says, I urge you to, work, to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Now, these words here, worthy of your calling, are absolutely vital. Because embedded in that phrase, worthy of the calling that you have received, are two life-changing implications. The first is this, that you and I and every follower of Christ has received a calling to participate in the mission of Christ. This is the baseline definition for leadership. What do we mean when we say leadership? We mean this. An invitation to participate in leading other people to Jesus. Paul has just defined that as the role of the church. And now he has said to the church, I want you to walk worthy of that calling. Now it's easy to say, well, he's not talking about me, but Paul addresses the letter to all the saints. Verse one, chapter one. He's talking to you. You have a calling 
to the leadership function of leading other people to Jesus, helping people grow in maturity in Christ. Paul is brilliantly, when he says, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling, he has intersected the eternal, glorious plan of Jesus with your life to call you to be a specific leader within the family. What this means is that in a family thinking of leadership, you can't point to the leadership without pointing to yourself. Everyone has a role as a leader in the church. You can't say the leadership without also pointing at yourself because everybody has received the call. You are part of the family. Therefore, you have a role to play in the health of the whole. Leadership is not a category of person in the church. It's a responsibility of everyone. That's the first implication. I urge you to walk worthy of your calling. Everybody has received that calling to participate in the mission and therefore to participate in leadership. Number two, the second implication is that not everyone is currently living worthy of that calling. If Paul is having to urge the church to live worthy of the calling, the implication is that not everybody was doing that. What this means is that there are those who are more mature, or mature, whichever pronunciation you prefer, (laughs) more mature in their walk with Christ, and those who are more mature in their walk with Christ have the responsibility to walk with those who are not yet walking in the fullness of their capacity. If there, in other words, is different degrees to which people are walking worthy of their calling, that means that there is a responsibility of those that have worked that out more, that are more mature, to come alongside those who are weaker and help them grow stronger. In other words, while everyone has the call to leadership, not everybody has the same responsibilities and influence at the same time. You see, we would all agree... I hope that in a healthy family, there are still leadership responsibilities. In a family, everyone has some kind of leadership, unless you're the cat. Maybe the cat can have a free pass. But leadership or responsibility in a family is not a binary category. There's the, the leaders and the not leaders. Maybe if you, especially if you broaden it out to not include a nuclear family, you think wider. In a big family, everyone has responsibilities. There isn't the leaders and the not leaders. But someone's influence or leadership uh, sway is a result of their maturity and their place in the family. In other words, leadership influence in the church is a result of spiritual fruitfulness, not a result of a hierarchy. And we're going to get into that a lot more next week. See, in the church as a family, every person in the family is called to some form of leadership. But not every person in the family has the same degree of responsibility or influence. And this is specifically highlighted in verses 7 and 11 of chapter 4. I'm going to read them here. Now, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, a.k.a. everyone is called to participate, Number 11, verse 7. But then in verse 11, he says, And to himself he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, some pastors and teachers. 
Paul has introduced this idea that everyone has a responsibility, but not everyone has the same responsibility, role, or influence. Paul is demonstrably more influential in the Ephesian church. And next week, we're going to talk about why exactly that is. But just as in a family, parents have a distinct responsibility from the children, so too those who are more mature in the church have a responsibility as well. There are different roles in the family. Not everyone is ready, capable of, or capable of all responsibilities, but everyone has some responsibilities. Even in my personal household, my four-year-old Kai still has responsibilities. She doesn't just get free reign, despite what she thinks. This is important because it means that leadership structures do not exist to create hierarchy to preserve people's positions. Rather, leadership structures where we create them exist so that every person has a pathway towards maturity. In order for that to be healthy, in order for the church to be healthy, it's vital that people are working out responsibilities and roles in a manner that is appropriate to their commitment to their family, their character, and their competence. So how does that work? What actually does church leadership do? Well, at a macro level, we invite people to know Jesus, and we disciple people towards maturity in Christ. But, but what does that look like more specifically? Well, in Ephesians 4, particularly 13 to 16, I'm going to draw out four things that church leadership does for us. And I'll try to do these briefly, but I, I believe this is so important. So I'm going to take some liberty and go a little long today because it is so vital that we understand uh, the foundation that we're laying today. Verse 13, chapter 4. He's given these gifts to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we reach maturity in the faith and then the knowledge of God's Son. The anchor, the bedrock, the foundation, foundation, the cornerstone of gospel leadership is unity in Christ. It's not about an organizational vision, goal, or values. My job in our church is not to shepherd the organization, lift church. No, it's to call us as a church to unity in Christ. It's about Jesus and his mission. The job of leadership is to unify people, leadership at all layers and in all responsibilities, big and small, is to unify people around a common Lord, Jesus. Now, this isn't just about an affirmation of a set of beliefs. Though we're going to talk about the role of leadership in, in uh, serving to protect and teach truth uh, in, I think, two weeks. No, the unity of Christ is rooted in a unity of experiencing the profound love of Jesus. When Paul prays for the Ephesian church in chapter 3, he prays as an influential leader. And if I would encourage you to go read the prayer, Paul's prayer for the church. And he prays that what would unify them is an experience of the love of Jesus. The job of gospel leadership is not to build institutions, systems, structures, run budgets, sort and gauge, fill out KPIs. 
No, the job of gospel leadership is to bring people together, unified, to experience the love and the joy and the gift of grace found in Jesus. Yes, just as families have budgets, chores, and tasks, so too do church family have budgets, chores, and tasks, but those are not the family. That's not the purpose of the family. This is liberating. The primary job we have as leaders isn't to build great organizations, but to lead people to love Jesus. The second aspect of this unity dimension is unity of mission. We are a missional family. And to bring people together where everybody's eyes and hopes and dreams are aimed at Jesus and his mission. We're so tempted to try to achieve unity by some other experience of Christ or some other experience other than Christ. Unity of preference, unity of style, unity of, uh, you know, format, unity of whatever. But the job of church leadership is to unify people around the love of Jesus. The second role of gospel leadership comes from verse 14 of chapter 4. Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown about by every wind of teaching, by human cunning and cleverness in the techniques of deceit. In all of our lives, there are those who are weaker in the faith, who are being tossed and blown about by culture, poor theology, bad teaching, difficult moments, seasons in life where there's pain and grieving, what they read on social media. And, and as children, they're getting blown and buffeted and, and pushed around. And the job of gospel leadership is to come along and anchor them. To help them grow from children who are being blown all about into adults so they can stand secure knowing the love of Jesus, standing on his truth. The mark of a healthy parent is not to produce lots of children. That does not mean you're a successful parent. There are lots of parents who have made lots of children who are terrible parents. No, the mark of a successful parent is to produce healthy adults. The measure of effective leadership is not charisma, spiritual pedigree, or the ability to gather lots of people. No, the mark of effective gospel leadership is the ability to raise spiritual adults. Or said another way, to reproduce disciples. See, in church as family, what this means is that leaders, those who are mature in Christ, begin to take on the burden of those who are not. They sacrifice their lives, invest their emotions, energy, and souls into ensuring that every person will be matured and secure, not tossed by the waves into the full likeness of Christ. And in this regard, I think that traditional modes of church leadership have sadly missed the mark. We tend to view leadership as a responsibility of a few and as a result, we inadvertently give permission for many Christians to remain and continue to function like children in their faith. 
asking leaders to feed them and clothe them. This is the difference between the dominant modes of thinking in the Western church and what God is doing globally. In the Western church, we tend to measure the effectiveness of a church leader by the size of their gathering, how many hundreds or thousands of people they have gathered. This is, I'm going to be blunt for a moment, this is foolish and unbiblical and a tragedy because what it results in is millions of Christians who are locked into perpetual adolescence in their faith rather than being released into fruit-bearing adulthood. But when we zoom out and we start to look at what God's doing in his church, we, got to, we get to see pictures of discipleship movements. And in discipleship movements, it's not about raising lots of children, but of deploying lots of spiritual parents. In a discipleship movement, the effectiveness of a leader is not measured by the size of their platform, but by the fruit of their children and their children's children, and their children's children. This is the heart of simple church, that you would see yourself as participating in the process of healthily reproducing a spiritual family, taking responsibility for those who are newer or weaker in the faith, maturing them to adulthood, and sending them to go make new children. This is the job of the church. Think about that for a moment. If you are mature in Christ, if you know Christ, you have the added leadership responsibility of discipling those who are less mature towards greater wholeness, security, and fruitfulness in Christ. That is the job of the church. This isn't about leadership pipelines or leadership structures. It is a natural overflow of healthy families. We've been talking a lot about the missionary appointment. Everything about the missionary appointment is an effort to try to make sure that those who are mature in faith in our church can be deployed and have a pathway towards influencing the lives of those who are younger in the faith so that they will not be blown about by the waves of culture and the challenges of life. The missionary appointment was about seeing more people raised and deployed as leaders, leading people who are new and weak and struggling to be secure and firm and in love with Jesus. That's why in church's family and leadership, the longer you're around, the greater your influence is. Not because you automatically receive that by virtue of time, but because as you effectively lead, you grow more and more disciples. You raise more and more children, and you release people to live on mission. And this leads to the third function of church leadership. Verse 13, back at the beginning of chapter 4, it says, The job of the church, of leaders in the church, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. And then Paul returns to this idea in verse 16. He says, To promote the growth of the body for the building up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Closely related to this idea of maturing people to be strong in the faith is this idea of reproducing of the family, to build the family or grow the body. Paul is, is sort of mixing three metaphors. He's got a building metaphor, a family metaphor, and a body metaphor. Stronger buildings, stronger bodies, stronger families, but also growing buildings, bodies, and families. 
The job of leadership is not to hoard talents for themselves, but to raise and release the talents of others. When we start to understand gospel leadership, there is no place for celebrity culture. There's no place for celebrity. But in organizational modes of leadership, the organization can exist to build the platform of the leader, attracting more people to their unique talents. But that makes no sense in a family model. In fact, in a church's family model, influential leaders work to empower and deploy more people on mission. This is the job of the simple church leader or disciple maker. It's to mature those in the faith until the point where they can be deployed themselves, thus growing the family. Eventually, every disciple must be released to be a disciple maker. The reproductive responsibility of gospel leadership is beautiful because it means that leadership influence grows not by virtue of, of you know, having great skills or having great charisma or being you know, you know, sneaky <laughs> in climbing the, the, the ladder or whatever. No, influence grows through gospel leadership by reproducing healthy fruit. So firstly, gospel leadership unifies under a love of Christ, with Christ as Lord. Number two is it matures people towards security in Christ. Number three is it releases people to be reproducers and leaders themselves. And finally, the job of church leadership is to model Christ's love. Verse 15 of chapter four, but speaking the truth in love, the production team, I have the wrong verse up there, so I'm going to read it off my notes here. Ephesians 4 verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow into every way who him is the head Christ. The goal is to become more like Christ. And in order for our spiritual children to be like Christ, we must be the model of Christ for them. This means that the job of the gospel leader is to serve the family the same way Christ has served you. This goes so much further than servant-hearted leadership. To model Christ's love to raise children that under, spiritual children that understand what Christ's love looks like is to lay down your life for those that you lead, to truly allow their needs to surpass your own. Jesus did not love his life even unto death. That is the manner of our leadership. Have you thought about leadership that way, as loving your simple church, your church family, the campus around us, in the same way that Christ has loved us. To be a part of the church is no mere participation in community or convenience. It is an invitation to lay your life down and take up the responsibility for the thriving of others. Gospel leadership, therefore, will cost you your life. Leadership is simultaneously an essential requirement for every believer, but it is also, make no mistake, profoundly costly. Following Jesus will cost you your life. And to follow Jesus is to lead other people to Jesus. I said near the beginning that gospel leadership is impossible, and maybe you're despairing saying, I can't do that. Well, gospel leadership is impossible. 
It requires us to deny ourselves, lay down our lives and serve others. None of us could be that kind of leader. Not myself, not anyone. This is the revolution of gospel leadership. It is leadership that sacrifices itself for the lost, for the family and for the cause of Christ. And it is a leadership that is only possible by the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul introduces it in verse 20 of chapter three. I wanna read it again. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. It is so vital that we understand that gospel leadership is not a work of ourselves, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot love like Jesus, serve like Jesus, or lead like Jesus without the Holy Spirit. Gospel leadership is not a human venture. It is a Holy Spirit-empowered, supernatural adventure. <laughs> I said venture, but I also added an adventure because it is an adventure. And so as I close, my invitation today is when you hear all of this, to not take it onto your shoulders as a task or a load, but to receive it as an invitation to allow the Holy Spirit to move within you. To not look at your brokenness and discount yourself, but to instead say, the Holy Spirit is able. He's able to use you for this kind of leadership. Let's pray. Jesus, this uh, was a lot today, a lengthy teaching, but Jesus, I believe it's so vital to see how beautiful your church is. And Father, I confess that I am not this type of leader in myself, but I thank you, Lord, that I have had moments where I have seen your spirit work within me. And Lord, I pray that every leader, every person in our church would see themselves as included in the family and as a participant on the mission but Jesus, not by their strength, but by the work of your spirit. To him who is able to do more than we could think or imagine, Jesus, teach us to trust you, to lean on you, to walk with you, to not see structures and formatted organizations as the goal, but Jesus, to see maturity in you, closeness to you, and experience of you as the goal. Holy Spirit, we invite you to transform the way that we think about leadership. Amen. I'm going to pick up part two of this. This is just the first part. The second part of this message is next week, and then we're going to apply it in the coming weeks. But I want to leave you with a question. How does church as family change your perspective on your role as a leader in the church? How does this change your role? I'll leave that for you guys. Be blessed, church. Have a great week. We'll see you on Thursday to apply this stuff in the context of Simple Church.